Hello, hello, you have reached the Blacker the Berry podcast, and this is your host, the Berry Flair. And today, we're starting a brand new series called the Black Migration Series. This particular series is going to follow the life of one of my dear friends who is a queer dual citizen, okay? And so the reason why I wanted to have this series, Black Migration, is because it's so important to talk about how the Black diaspora plays a part in what it means to move from one place to the other, whether it be from another country to a new one or another city to a new one. Black people have been moving from place to place for a very long time. We can talk about um, um, Somali Bantu tribes who have been moving from place to place forever. We can talk about um, just ancestral folks and our ancestral plane who have been moving for a really long time. Migration has always been a part of the black story we could talk about in the 1920s the great um the great migration of black people from the south to north america um and the list goes on and on that's just some of them but today i want my special guest to introduce himself who are you where you from hey what up what up how y'all doing my name is richie um, I am originally from Nigeria, which is in West Africa, and I currently reside in Western New York, so up in Buffalo area. And uh, that's a little bit of a little bit of, I guess, my background. Word. So me and Richie met a very, very Richie is actually one of my best friends, y'all. So let's just talk about that. Um, and me and Richie met many years ago when he was just a little baby college student at Buffalo State. <laughs> Um, which is a college in Buffalo, New York. And from then, we've just kind of been inseparable. We even were roommates at one point, um, post-college. And yeah, which, which, if you can survive being a roommate with a good friend of yours, then you just know that relationship is Facts. Like Two Leos, cubbing it up. Two Leos. We did, though. We definitely did. Um, so do you want to talk about some of the work that you do or have done or just involving community? Um, it's up to you really, honestly. Yeah. 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 I can definitely do that. Um, I consider myself kind of like a creative, um, but I suppose the arena that I'm most comfortable with is writing. Um, so I've been a poet for a long time. I do short fiction. I'm currently doing script writing. But when I say creative, you know, I've done things in the community. Um, I've created spaces for other people to kind of excel. Um, I've put together shows and events um, to kind of put other um, demographics, other people on the platform, you know, black women, queer people, you name it. Um, in the past, I've also done sexual health work, um, which is just educating black and brown youth on better sexual practices when it comes to using condoms, prep, getting tested, et cetera, et cetera. Um, providing services that they needed or linking them to the services that they needed was part of like what I was doing at the time. Although now I'm um, a program assistant for a literary center, so I'm more like doing literary arts, um, providing spaces again for like other people in the literary arts, and also just growing as an artist and a creative person myself. So, yeah. If there's something I truly admire about Richie is that you know, he definitely makes his positive impact felt in the community. And I just really love that, you know, not just for 
you know, his amusement, but truly, truly because he cares. And so um, that's why I really wanted to have you on. And I wanted you to come and talk about your experience as a black person of the diaspora, you know, who has migrated um, at a very, a pretty young age. And so if you want to kind of tell us your experience from moving to Nigeria, um, to America or to New York state in general, um, I would love, I, we would all love to hear that honestly. So, yeah. 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 Um, I, I, I mean, I, where do I start, right? It's such a journey, you know, in like transitioning from one culture to, other, to another culture. Um, but I moved to the United States when I was 10 years old, which now would be around 17, 16, 17 years ago. And a culture shock would be an understatement. You know, I had grown up in, in Nigeria for 10 years, and so moving to the United States, I just happened. Uh, kids sound differently than I did. Um, kids make fun of me because I had an accent, right? It was this huge transition period of like, I don't understand black Americans, which is, you know, it tends to be very real for a lot of continental Africans who come here, um, is noticing that there is kind of a difference in how you navigate people versus how like black Americans navigate people. Um, and then like once I was getting over that, it was like, oh, you know, we're kind of the same. Uh, we just sound different or there's certain differences, but ultimately in how we are treated under this white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, it's all the same, right? Mm-hmm. But growing up was very difficult. Um, you know, I, I came from a poor, low-income household, a single-mother household, so I had five siblings in my house, and my mother was taking care of all of us, and it was rough because as someone who was, at the time, I didn't know that I was going to be this queer human being, you know, I had a lot of emotions and feelings, sexual emotions, sexual feelings that I wanted to express, but I couldn't because of the really intense homophobia that existed within confines of my household mm-hmm. and so um you know i had hidden that part of myself under this layer of performativeness i guess mm-hmm. um, before performing masculinity to like fit in in school better to fit in home better to silence and like um shrink myself as much as possible just so i can fit into the mold of like heteronormativity which can be very, which actually was very damaging. Mm-hmm. But so that's kind of a little bit about how I grew up in here and in, in Queens. Um, I would say one of the biggest things for me, and, and like the culture shock, was feeling this kind of like glass. How do I say it? Feeling like I was in a fishbowl of white supremacy. Like in Nigeria, everyone's mm. the same. Everyone's house the same. It's just that life is. That's what, what life was, right? It was just. It was never this black versus white thing, or, or at least it wasn't as evident when I was in Nigeria. Was it because here, it was just a lot yeah. of black people, or? Yeah, it was a yeah. lot of black people. Like, I mean, I, I don't think I ever saw a white person until I came here at 10 years old. Wow. And so, so really transitioning to like, oh, now my blackness feels like it's in relation to whiteness was kind of a, a reckoning for me to like mm. try to wrap my head around. Um, you know, being in school and watching the news and seeing what was happening with black bodies and seeing just seeing how black people were portrayed in the media. It just it was it was just it was intense and overwhelming. 
Wow. You know, you're really not even the first person that I know who has migrated from, you know, um, the continent of Africa, various countries of friends that I've had, whether they be from South Africa, Ghana, Nigeria, who are from Eastern Africa, that has come up so often around like, hey, like, I was black because I was black. I wasn't blackness. I wasn't, my blackness was not defined as a kind of like what whiteness isn't. It's like, hey, you're black because this is what whiteness isn't. It's more like I was black and I was, this is just who I was around and what was happening around me. Like it wasn't any question around this like duality of like or binary idea of of race um which i you know i could never i don't i would never know how that feels because i mean that's not what i grew up in not in the future that i won't never know how it feels but like that's just what i grew up in and i think that's what so many young uh black americans have and i think that's sometimes why um for so long a lot of us were very kind of anti-african like in many ways right like um yeah in this like outsider kind of way like um yeah i I also think you know i'm going back to nigeria next month um for about a week and a half and i've been there before to visit because i was born there but there is a certain transformative feeling of being in a space where you don't have to worry about white people. Sorry if any white people are listening to this, I'm not trying to be offensive. But there's a certain transformative kind of emotion that overwhelms you when you're like in, you know, in countries that are predominantly black, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's something that you definitely can experience if you were to like visit predominantly black countries or even being in predominantly black spaces. You know, not to like extend it all the way to Africa, but like even in your communities, like for sure, for sure, that is predominantly like people like me, who look like me, who who I feel like a kinship to. That can be a transformative feeling. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, and it it also speaks to culture too, right? Because when you came to the United States, like there were black kids here. You know what I mean? Like, just culturally, their lives were so much different from yours, and your interactions then were different to each other. Um, yeah. And so I think that that definitely has to be uplifted. But like, in thinking about like when, say, for the first time I ever went to Jamaica, and I was actually with one of my really good friends, you know, you know, Alexis, and um, we went to Jamaica together as as a um, academic group and she was like this reminds me of home so much and I just remember the joy that I felt even thinking about that being a possibility but also being in this place where it was just so many black people and not that I didn't grow up in that I grew up in a space where it was always so many black people but it was different because it was like culture was carried there in a different way than I had seen it here. But then, of course, there were some similarities as well. So, I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent on that point, but, like, I definitely agree with you um, around just, like, kind of the immense joy I feel when I feel like I'm in a space that I can relate to and identify with. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. And and of course, like, I know and you know that, like, we are all the same at the end of the day. We mm-hmm. all come from the same place. We're all brethren in this, in this you know, journey that we have here together on this planet. However, what I really want to talk about, too, is just, like, this divide that just, like, almost, like, unspoken divide between continental Africans and, like, African Americans and, like, Caribbean Americans. There seems to be just, like, this divide of, like, I don't know how to describe it, but I can speak from my experiences and my parents, for example. Um, My mother has this term for African Americans that a lot of Nigerians um, actually do have for African Americans. You might have heard this before, but it's called Akata. And basically, Akata, loosely translated, is like person who is lost, right? Mm. So there are a lot of continental Africans who view African Americans as like lost people, right? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, you you were taken from your home and you went through slavery and God knows what else happened, but now you're hearing a a native, a foreign, sorry, a foreign land and you're lost to your culture. And so this term Akata was born. And growing up, that was a way for my mom to differentiate who I was from the people that I was hanging around. Oh, you're bringing that Akata to the house. Oh, mm-hmm. what do you think to that Akata? You know, it was always like us versus them. Yeah. Which is, as I've grown older, I, I now understand the roots of that mentality. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm proud to say, like, now I feel like I'm a, I'm a 100% Akata because I, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I, I guess I've adopted a lot of qualities that, like, a lot of Akata. Yeah. I think it's... To be an Akata quality, right? Yeah. Which, again, is, is a ridiculous concept, but there is that... I don't think it's totally ridiculous, but, I mean, I think what comes up for me, I think there's a sense of arrogance in that, right? That is like, hey, even without knowing uh, this specific person, I'm just gonna assume all black Americans are lost, right? And then there is the kind of assumption that happens with black people um, when they meet someone who is from the continent of Africa, right? Regardless of where they're specifically from, it's this assumption about hey do you speak english do you do this you know and that really it's like this it's a lot of inferiority superiority kind of on and off switch situations going on i think between both continental africans and you know people of the diaspora and i mean like growing up and seeing that i definitely probably participated because i was a child and like that may have seemed appropriate but like when i grew up i was like definitely that's not the case like if anything this is my family um and i learned more about the diaspora but it's like so many things that you learn as a young american that don't really attribute to um it being like this promotion of like hey even across the world you have kinship right um and that's not even just on the continent of africa but like just like you know in the caribbean and you know south america and you know all across this planet there are black people but when you are not taught that then you will and even adults make those mistakes too right so like as much as you can say your mom was saying nakata right akata Uh um 
you know, I'm pretty sure. Oh, yeah. The number one thing American parents love to say when you were a kid was, it's kids in Ethiopia who ain't got no food. Eat your food. Right? And it's like, huh? And then I grow up and I meet all these, like, Ethiopian people and I learn about the Ethiopian culture and I learn about, um, you know, what was, I guess, considered at some point Ethiopia and now is Eritrean culture and... You know, it's just like, it's not, it doesn't align. So, like, we are so misled by media and things of that sort. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I think also, too, that it starts when we're young, right? It starts when we're young and we see these things in the media and we make all these assumptions about, you know, what, what we're seeing in the media. Mm-hmm. And those ideas are perpetuated as we grow older, which become now deep-seated beliefs, beliefs mm-hmm. which is a natural course of action. But I think that, you know, especially when you add the layer of being a queer, because, you know, I'm, I'm someone who I'm a gay, queer, black um, immigrant. You mm-hmm. know, when you add that layer onto it, it now becomes, wow, I made so many different intersections. Mm-hmm. And how do I now start to bridge all these different identities together to create the whole that I know that I am, right? Facts. It took a long time to do because... You know, again, going back to like how continental Africans separate themselves from African Americans. For me, you know, my mom, it was like, oh, the gay thing, the queer thing, whatever. That's an American course, thing. That's not, that's a Western thing. Actually, mm. right? that's a Western thing. Yeah. We don't do that where we come from. We Africans don't do that. We don't have that in our country. That's a Western thing, and they teach people. And, and she, you know, over years of talking to her, I truly believe that she really does believe that. It is a learned habit, and just as it can be learned, it can be unlearned. And this is a deep-seated belief, right? And mm-hmm. so that was hard growing up with, uh, to be like, oh, maybe she is right. You know, so there was a lot of, like, internal conflict happening in teenage, in my teenage self of, like, wow, maybe I did learn these traits from the Western, from the West, and I can unlearn it, which was very difficult for me. Um, there was just no way to get around the fact that, like, I had these strong emotions and I had these strong feelings, and they were for men, you know? Mm-hmm. And in a way, uh, actually, this directly led to me moving eight hours away from New York City. I'm in Buffalo currently, and I've been here for almost ten, almost ten years now. Yeah. So, so yeah, that was that was really hard. And a lot of houses, a lot of African households, a lot of um, um, Kirby houses, and also black houses like that you know the just the whole like gay thing is like agenda or the queer thing is an agenda i think that's like in black house codes across the diaspora though you know and then there's individual cases where people have come to know different but like i think that there are definitely i mean i've heard stories from black american queer friends of the same kind of idea like this is a an agenda of white supremacy, basically, and maybe not using those very words, but uh, maybe of the Western world or white people or uh, America or schools or TV or, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I mean, so, okay. So the last time I was in, and I know you know this story, Marche, the last time I was in Nigeria, I told you what happened which was a very traumatizing experience for me, but I want to share that just because we're in space. And I really want to share the story. 
So I had gone back to Nigeria two years ago, and you know I went back with my mom. It was the first time I'd been back since I moved here when I was a little boy, and I was ex- I was excited. You know, I got to go back to the motherland. I got to reconnect with my roots, um, see people who I haven't seen in a long time. But unbeknownst to me, there was a, an agenda, an actual agenda by my mother that was perpetuated to inoculate. I guess, the gay side of myself. She wanted to eradicate that side with African religion, Nigerian religion, to be specific. Mm-hmm. So on three different days, um, she had a pastor come to the house to pray over me. She had um, an imam come to the house to pray over me, which is kind of like an Islamic, Islamic um, person of import. Mm-hmm. Um, she also had a babalawo come uh, to the house, and this was this is probably the most um, intense moment for me mm-hmm. because I was woken up at 12 a.m. in the morning and I was blindfolded and I hear my mother's voice and she's telling me it's okay it's okay this is for your own good and I believe her because she's my mother and I know she wants the best for me in my mind that's what I believed at the time yeah and so I, I follow her outside not knowing or seeing anything but black and I'm outside standing I, I hear the crickets chirping it's a warm cold night and I hear a man's voice I don't know who this man is and he starts speaking in a different language not my um, native language which is Yoruba he starts speaking in a different language mm-hmm. and they cut two tiny slits in my face with a razor blade but black which I'm familiar with this ritual. It's actually a protection ritual. Yeah. I had before when I was younger. But it was on my face. It was two slits that was um, carved into my face, and then a black powder was put over it, and I was told to go back to the bed with it on my face. Mm. And there was never any explanation before or after any of these experiences happened. They just happened. And I had to come to terms with the significance of what that would mean for me. Mm-hmm. And that was a very, very difficult trip for me because I truly believed, and this is just two years ago, it's crazy how much I've grown in the last two years. Yeah. At the time, I truly believed that it worked. I was like, hey, I'm glad that this is happening. I was so excited to be back home that I was willing to accept the... I was, I was willing to accept anything, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I said to myself, maybe this will work. Maybe all, all those years of doing, you know, being a queer human being was wrong, and maybe this is, this is it for me. And I come back to the U.S., and I'm severely depressed for three months, just depressed. And I come out the other, end, the other end of it being like, wow, I don't think I've ever been more gayer than I am in this moment. <laughs> I love it. Point where I became unapologetically secure in who I was. Yes, that's what they brought out. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Sometimes you have to go through these tough experiences. They were like facts. Facts. They didn't know the work they was doing, but they did something. (laughs) It was like, let him see how it feels to live without being his authentic self one more time. 
Oh hell no! That's what your spirit said. It said, "Oh hell no! I don't think so." <laughs> yes, I just thank you, and I'm so proud of you. Always, you know that. Um, you really are such a fucking resilient person, and like that's why I wanted you to come and share your story today. I was just like, Richie has to come and share his story because also this is a story of migration, like. Even just everything you said, right? First you first you came to America, New York, Queens to be specific, right? And yep. then you migrated again to get away from people not allowing you to be your authentic self in New York City. Right. And then you went back home, right? Within this 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 journey of migration and found out even more about yourself and like right. I just you know, often I feel like when we talk about stories of migration, for some reason, just the black migration is not uplifted in that way. You know, whether it be black immigrants or whether it be, um, you know, Americans who are moving from place to place too. Um, for some reason, you don't often see that in the media. And I, we are creating our own media facts and that's it. You know what I mean? I, I... I'm so thankful to have you in my life, and I'm so thankful to be in your life. Yeah, and, and I'm so thankful to have you in my life, and to have people in my life who affirm me every day, to have people in my life who support me, um, and just to be able to express myself in the way that I do, I will forever be grateful for that, because there are so many other people. Um, who are still in Nigeria, who are still in other countries, and not comfortable being who they are. And mm-hmm. that's not to say that that's the only place where they're not comfortable, because even here in the U.S., they're not comfortable expressing themselves. So I'm grateful to have people around me who are able to help me be my, be closer to the truest expression of who I am as a person. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, and just to kind of go uh, circumvent back to the beginning of this conversation, you know, when you said um, that people are migrating, people have always been migrating since mm-hmm. the dawn of right? Facts. Um, and the fact remains that we have a, an administration who likes to project these negative stereotypes, views and criminal views on, on immigrants and calling them words like alien or illegal aliens. Mm-hmm. So ridiculous. Mm-hmm. But we need to push back against this narrative, against this rhetoric that immigrants are like criminals or or people haven't moved. Rapists. Facts. It's simply just not true when you look at what actually happens in this country. You realize that that's actually not where a lot of these crim- this crime is happening or a lot of this, these rapes are happening. It's mm-hmm. not from immigrants. And so we need to push back against this idea that the immigrant is the other because at the end of the day we are all the same and if we don't treat black um, or nigerian immigrants or eritrean immigrants or Sudanese immigrants if we don't treat anyone else in our community then we are playing into the hands of the establishment you know exactly i mean and that's why us getting back to storytelling and you coming on to tell your story is so important because we are uplifting what people's experiences and just as i want to lift the you know the experiences 
of you know the black diaspora it is very important for me to lift the stories of just indigenous people and um people of color and in general right whatever that experience may be in whatever intersection that may be because so often it is um something that is not um seen but i think uplifted or seen and i think that the tides are changing like you know it's a lot of realignment happening right now and we can get a little bit into that conversation a little bit later about the realignment that is happening now but i do want to ask you like what are some philosophies you hold that have gotten you this far um I think for me, like especially as a Leo, and also someone who, you know, I grew up in a Christian, really Christian household, and then I transitioned from being really Christian to being Buddhist, and then I transitioned from being Buddhist to Muslim for a little while, and now I don't necessarily have any religion that I subscribe to, mm-hmm. however I still consider myself a spiritual person, right? Yeah. So I think, I think for me what has worked or what I truly believe in that may not be as like widely accepted it's just um, everyone has something that gets them through the day or everyone has their routines or something that they believe in that gets gets them through the day and as long as it is not infringing on your way of life as long as it's not impacting who you are infinitesimally as a person and just let that shit slide. Like, let them live their lives. Let them grow as people. Maybe you'll grow as a person if you become more accepting and understanding of who they are. And I think that leaves us room to become more authentic and living our own lives. Mm-hmm. Stop in judgment of other people because we might not understand them or their beliefs um, when it doesn't impact us. So. I truly believe that it's definitely affecting me. Then, gung ho, go for it, live, grow, have fun. Yeah. Now, if it is impacting me, if it is impacting other people in a way that is detrimental to their survival or to their health or to their rights, then I'm like, okay, we need to do something about this. It's clearly not working. But this is a belief that I truly hold, um, and that has gotten me through a lot of just unnecessary trauma. <laughs> I feel it. That's so real. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I just love that part um, about, like, if it's not, because I also hold that philosophy of, like, if it's not hurting anyone, right, why should you have something to say? If it's, like, truly putting someone's life in danger in any kind of way, economically, shelter-wise, politically, um then that's when you need to take the time to stand up and support people in the ways that they want to be supported, of course. Um, But yes, I agree with you so much. (laughs) Um, So this segment of the podcast is called What It Is. It's the What It Is segment. So (laughs) this segment, we just kind of talk about current events. And as you know, since we're, most of us are quarantined and, um, around the world really uh um yeah and i've been talking to so many of my different friends from all over you know when it comes to the coronavirus 
um, and talked to some of my friends in Oakland who were like technically like it's shut down, shut down. They like done a what is it called when they um a pl- a shut a shelter in place or something like that. Is that what it's called? Um, where like absolutely no one can leave. Like a yeah, but it's called like a shelter in place. Like. Oh, for and since New Orleans right now, like things are shut down, but people can still go outside and are allowed to go outside. Like, right. it's like in right now, Italy is technically in a shelter. Um, whatever I just said, I can't even shelter think. Shelter in place. Yeah, shelter in place. Okay. So people can't leave without. Some, I was just watching this like person who is in the U.S. Army who is also lives in Italy and works at the hospitals doing work with coronavirus and they were basically speaking about the fact that um, and not that I'm into military occupation of other people's spaces but um, they were just basically talking about how if they leave people have to have like paperwork to show why they leave and then they're basically questioned as to if it's really important for them to leave so you can't just be like oh I wanted to go to the corner store and get a Snickers that's why I left it gotta be like some real reason like hey I don't have any food in my house so I had to leave so I can go to the grocery but with that all being said um what are your thoughts around what people are going through internationally around just like this quarantine and like what do you see the afro future looking like when it comes to this um particular situation um yeah so what's the afro future of it all or what's the future of it all yeah um i think i think a lot of different countries are dealing with this in, in the best ways that they can mm-hmm. in ways right like the united states dealing with this a much different way than say China has dealt with this, say Italy has dealt with this. Um, I do think that the media has been, and this is not anything that's new, I think the media has been very irresponsible with how they've been reporting, sharing the news and disseminating information that has only, um, that has only added to the make that already exists within people. I think that in situations like this, where there's something that is widespread and, you know, um, affecting massive amounts of people, that panic is not, should not be the first response. But that has been a hard thing to accomplish because the media has definitely sown those seeds of, seeds of panic and like watered them to the point where people are just, just going crazy over totally and all sorts of other things. What I think is most important to do is just um, take care of yourself, listen to you know what the CDC and um, health officials are saying, uh, wash your hands, don't touch your face. Um, also, like, boost your immune system, take care of yourself. Um, I think when I think of the future of it all, to answer that question, it's just, this is a time of reckoning for and speaking for the United States or like the U.S. because I think a lot of people are starting to wake up to the fact that the institutions that exist in place now do not work for working people. And it's really interesting to like see all these different um, kind of like points of view from people who never spoke out about anything uh, before to talk about 
the just the rights of working people, right? So I think that people are starting to wake up to that. Mm-hmm. And it's only inevitable, you know, once we start to galvanize, which is what we have to do, right? To galvanize together, to band together, work together, working people, you know, working people, we don't have a color. We're, we're working people. And we have to realize that the powers that be, the establishment, um, the 1%, they hoard the power, they hoard the money. And if we come together, we can really abolish a lot of these institutions of oppression, racism, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. I like that people are starting to like come around to this. Um, as someone who is a staunch Bernie supporter, I'm hoping that this will give that extra boost um, to push or propel Bernie forward and his campaign towards presidency. Um, but I don't put all my stock in one man at the end of the day. I really am people-centered and oriented. And so we need to figure out in this time, in this um, um, space where there's a lot of vulnerable communities, you know, people who are um, service workers, et cetera, et cetera, how are you contributing to make sure that um, that they are um, taken care of, right? Like, what are, you, what are you doing to ensure that the most vulnerable in our communities are not without food, without water, without electricity, mm-hmm. right? Are you writing letters to your mayor? Are you donating to the are your local artists, you know? Basically, in this time, when we should we take care of ourselves, which is what we should be doing, we should also be thinking about how we can take care of each other. Exactly. I agree. I think mutual aid has always existed. I think I see it all the time online. Um, And just even in general, I think that people naturally want to support each other in community. Um, But what happens, of course, are these systems that don't always allow, well, kind of perpetuate the idea that people constantly have to be in competition with each other instead of helping each other um, or supporting each other, right? And that is with also saying, like, as a person who has been in service for a really long time, whether it be teaching, whether it be service industry stuff, whether it be, you know, I've always been involved in community in that way. I've learned many ways that I've allowed for certain systems to exploit me and then certain ways that I did not respect my capacity at moments and I think it's important to put that out there too and supporting people right and especially when it comes to a virus um also be within your capacity so if you have your last five dollars and you're low on food no one's expecting you to give your last five dollars if that is all that you have right but you sharing something or a document or um, information that could help someone is also a form of mutual aid as well. Um, mutual aid does not have to come always in the form of monetary funds. Um, and that's just for overall, even when the coronavirus is not a, a uh, on in the media where we're all doing pretty good and everyone's trying to go back to grieving and processing and doing all those things just remember like your mutual aid and your support for people never has to stop like it's so important and i love the part that you kind of talked about when it comes to just like working class people 
And I think a lot of things that are being lifted right now are kind of looking definitely at class dynamic, who can travel, when they can travel, who then is at the highest risk of transmitting the virus because they have those privileges, right? And then who is the most vulnerable when it comes to these class dynamics and privileges and... I'm seeing things that people have been talking about for a really long time actually come into a place where we have no choice but to address them. And that in itself makes me happy. You know, um, now people, the stories of so many people can be lifted, um, you know, when it comes to clean water, when it comes to mental illness, when it comes to disability. So, I mean... This yeah. is the time. Yeah, I also think it's. I think it's. It can be different from community to community, from mm-hmm. state to state. What's going on? So I think it's so important. You know, if you're listening to this and it's still during the time of the coronavirus outbreak, which I don't see ending anytime soon, that you really pay attention to what's happening in your community. What are mm-hmm. the What are the parts of your community that's most vulnerable? What can you do? Who's in charge? Who's making the decisions? How is money and funds being allocated in your state, in your city, in your community? These are things that you can try to figure out with a mesh network of social media. It's one of the things that I think social media is really great at. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you, if, you, if you feel like that's too much, which is also like valid and fair, um, you know, like Marcia said, like you said earlier, Marcia, like just sharing your status um, that you see on social media, sharing something, uh, commenting, or, or telling someone else something. Facts. Um, and this, I guess this, yeah, this brings me to my next question. Um, and I think this is important in talking about like what it looks like to support others. But um, how do you think your story can, like, people hearing your story can help them? Like, so how do you think your story can help others? And 
the only thing that has really kept me going forward is trying to live most authentically, but also trying to take care of myself in the littlest of ways. I think mm-hmm. that's, that's one of the biggest things I can emphasize is people say self-care all the time. Sometimes it can feel like a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is labor, and I don't think it gets talked about enough how much labor self-care can be. Mm-hmm. And so what I say to kind of offset that is, and what has worked for me is little things like anything that is little and that's just you is great for you in the long run. And mm-hmm. I hope that people can take that from my story because that is what has worked for me. Facts. Well, Richie, I want to thank you absolutely so much for sharing your story on the Black and the Berry podcast. Yes. And I'm so happy. Thank you so much for having me. Yes. I love talking about this. Um, and so I hope that I was able to. Yes. To You're our first so installment. <laughs> You're our first installment for the Black Migration series. And I really just love that people can hear more about the intersection of you know being a um immigrant and a queer immigrant and a black queer immigrant um and that that is not all that you are but how that has in some ways shaped your life and so thank you so much i love you so much um i appreciate you and if you want to let the folks know your social medias let them know your social medias. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, my Instagram is unveiled. It's unveiled, like unveiling the can or something. I don't know. Um, unveiled underscore. So the word unveiled and then the actual underscore. And you should be able to find me. My name is Richie Wills, um, which is also my name on Facebook. If you are more using Facebook. And um, yeah, I hope you all stay safe from the coronavirus. If you do have coronavirus, I hope that you um, recover well. <laughs> yes. We send a nothing but love to y'all. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a part of this community at the Black and the Berry Podcast. And this is your host, the Berry Flair. Peace out. Peace out.